Um, tonight's speaker, uh, Scott Kildall, is uh, an artist. Uh, he's a computer scientist. He's somebody who uh, has worked with some of uh, with with uh, large uh, tech companies with uh, with with technological tools that are that are cutting edge. And we're going to not only learn about his work tonight, but we're going to learn about a process and the way that, uh, as he's working today with um, scientists at SETI, uh, as he's worked with technology at Autodesk and, and in other projects over the years, uh, how he brings um, art thinking uh, into the picture with technologists and scientists. So please give a big round of applause for Scott now. Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Great. Hi, everyone. Um, I just want to thank Michael M. for all the hard work you've done in making me comfortable here. This is The Long Now Foundation does it right for their speakers. They make everyone feel super comfortable in the space, and they offer me anything I want, and they have a great media team to, um, to support me, so I feel really lucky in, in that. I'm what's called a new media artist, and it's sort of a funny term because it's not defined by, the media I work in is not defined by material like painting or sculpture, but rather by time itself. And so that means I work with new materials like 3D printing, interactive media, uh, internet media, and that sort of thing. And this gives me a lot of latitude to work with new technologies and incorporate old ones as well. So I'm going to go back a little ways here. Henri Bergson is probably the most famous philosopher you've never heard of. Um, he was super popular in the turn of the 19th century and was influential in the work on thinking about models of time. And he did a lot of work in thinking about the conundrum at the time or the model of perception was that perception and memory in the 1890s, 1900s were thought of one and the same thing. So you sort of perceive into the future as well as perceive into the past. And this presented a lot of problems for Bergson. He looked at the current model of time then, which is very similar to the common model of time now, which is that you have the future on one side and the past on the other. And then you have this infinitesimally small slice of the present moment. And you couldn't reconcile that, because um, the present moment, if you think about it harder and harder you think about it, we probably did this when we were little kids, the more it becomes into this sort of Zeno's paradox, where the present moment doesn't seem to really exist. And in mulling over this present moment problem, he started working on this new model of time. And he published a book in uh, a treatise in 1896 called Matter of Memory, in which he came up with this three-part model of time. And it's this three-part model of time that I think is one that I've been working with and thinking about in terms of future thinking and some of the projects that I've been um, looking at. And so this is my adapted model of the Bergsonian model of time. Um, I, I kind of cut through a lot of his philosophical language because it's a little bit hard to decipher in today's parlance. So in the Bergsonian model of time, you have the future. So these are things that, like vacations you might be planning, um, things are going to be happening a week from now, maybe tomorrow, and things in the past, long-term memories. 
And Bergson was really thinking more about the psychological aspects of time as opposed to the Einsteinian relativistic time problems. So think, you know, things are happening in the brain. And the expanded present are things that are happening just in the immediate future, your sense of anticipation, and also sloughing off the current uh, events as they happen. So it's expanding that window into like a, a bubble. So if you think about things that are happening tonight, I've just been talking for just a couple of minutes now, and we're definitely in that still expanded presence of time. And this Bergsonian idea of this expansion of time, this subjective present, has been affirmed by neuroscientists such as uh, David Eagleman, who talks about subjective time in our own brains. And so each of our own brains has its own conception of the present because our brain acts kind of like a clock, its own clocking mechanism where it gets... Uh, reactions from our fingertips, our ears, our eyes, that are all operating at different timescales and synchronizes them into one sort of clock for our own brains. And so each one of us is operating our own subjective present time space. And so this is always kind of the way with artists and philosophers. They often precede the work of scientists. They come up with these you know, crazy ideas and oftentimes in language that's hard to understand. And then years, decades later, a scientist will affirm the artistic and philosophical discoveries. And so the structure for the talk tonight is I'm going to be presenting about four different projects and interwoven with some of the ideas about art thinking and time models along the way. Uh, the first project um, that I did that I'm going to be talking about for the evening is one called Tweets in Space. This is a collaboration with my colleague, Nathaniel Stern. He's a professor of digital arts over at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I've collaborated with him on a few different projects now. And the idea behind Tweets in Space, uh, this is a project that we did in 2012, so it's a... Some of the technology and physics might have changed since then in terms of exoplanet studies, is that we want to send Twitter messages to a nearby habitable planet that might support human-like biological life. Right? And that planet that we chose was GJ667CC, and I was informed by Frank Marches, the astronomer at SETI, uh, before the talk, that that's still in the habitable zone, and they still might support alien life. So, so, uh, and it's, this has some of the ideal conditions to support life, or so we think. And there's still a lot of unknowns, but we just cho chose this planet in particular. And uh, one of the reasons we chose GJ67CC is that it's 22 light years away, so it's relatively close. We didn't want to send Twitter messages to something that's 1,000 light years away. It has to be close enough that we might be, might be able to get a response, in, at least in my lifetime. And we built this as a presentation at the Electronic International Symposium of Electronic Art, Isaiah, at Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2012. And so it was a 30-minute performance. And during those 30 minutes, and only those 30 minutes, you could send a, Twitter, a tweet with the hashtag tweets in space. And, and of course, you could do it anywhere in the world. And we would capture this in this back-end Twitter bucket for later transmission. <laughs> and one of our ideas for, for this project was, was that we wanted to have this be an uncurated feed. We wanted to have anyone could tweet about anything they wanted, and we would transmit it later. <laughs> and this is what the actual performance, the physical performance, looked like. Uh, this is uh, Isaiah. This is the Balloon Museum in Albuquerque. We had about 100 people there in physical space. And of course, we had people in virtual space so they could log on to the website and see the tweets, uh, similar to what you saw a minute ago, uh, scrolling live through the screen. And this was the double projection animation software I wrote, where uh, what would happen is that, let me see if this pointer works. What would happen is the Twitter messages would come up the screen here, 
um, in live time, in real time, and then beam from this little satellite dishes into the spaceship and fly off into space. <laughs> so we had an AV performance as well. <laughs> and this is one of the few instances where you have a performance where you invite people to actually bring out their phones and participate. Although the reality is we couldn't tell if people were just on Facebook or Twitter. Twitter. And essential to the success of this project was to have a, a tactical media campaign as well. And so we reached out and developed a press strategy and ended up getting, getting about 40 to 50 uh, articles in mainstream media, articles in uh, places such as the New York Daily News, Wired Science, and all that media coverage about the project made it a hugely successful one. We ended up getting 1,500 tweets in about 30 minutes, so it's almost a tweet a second, which was um, great. We didn't know how it was going to work out. We thought it might just be 50, of our, 50 tweets from our friends, but when we got the Wired Science article, we knew that it was going to work out pretty well for us. The transmission date was about six weeks later, uh, and we transmitted it from a satellite dish that we rented out in uh, Florida. So it's a small to medium dish. So in theory, you need like a large listening dish to, uh, to hear the messages. And those were transmitted six weeks later because that's the time at which GJ667CC would uh, be in the right spot so that 22.1 light years later, it would get this decayed radio message. And this was a worldwide performance which repurposed social media. Uh, Twitter at the time wasn't quite the sort of hot political issue it is now or hot political item. And like I said, we, uh, it was an uncurated, unfiltered set of tweets. So we were a little bit worried we might get some hate, hate tweets in there. But this was 2012, so it was kinder, gentler times. And we didn't, <laughs> uh, yeah, and we, did, we didn't get any of that. So that, that, was, that was good. That was good. No, nothing about, nothing, nothing hateful. Uh, we did get a lot of really nice ones, though, like highly alien neighbors. Visit here, us here on Earth. Uh, ones of love, so people from all over the world wishing love and spreading that, that kind of message. Um, a lot of them in different languages. So for some reason, I mean, Mandarin doesn't surprise me, but there's a lot in Portuguese for some reason. So I guess there must have been some Portuguese media. Um, people, of course, asking, like, what color people are. <laughs> Green or blue. Uh, this is a classic one, meter pads, right? <laughs> And there were also um, a lot of popular culture references. <laughs> the one that surprised me the most was this, this kind of sentiment. People who were apologizing on behalf of the poor behavior of human beings. And there were a lot of people who said, like, you know, we've done a lot of bad things, but we're still a good race of people at heart. Please forgive us. Come visit us anyways. And so what the Tweets in Space project did was, looking at this kind of uh, sort of point of here and now, was to expand that time frame of that, of that point of uh, now to make it a little further, because now the artwork is five year, light years away from us in this decaying orbit, but that's where the artwork is. And it also opened up that, that sense of space, so it's in this like, larger spatial point of view, and the extension of the artwork is going to be 22 years into the future. So technically, it doesn't exist once it hits the planet, um, which is an odd way to think about artwork, but that's the way I think about it. And so I'm going to have a few propositions for the evening. The first one is that art thinking allows us to expand our notions of space and time. Um, and art thinking is a methodology by which artists develop their work. And it's a methodology I've researched and, and developed. Um, and so just to state the case that this is my methodology, I think it applies to a lot of other artists, and I'm going to propose that um, it's a valid methodology for creating artwork and one that artists use. But first of all, I want to talk about design thinking, which is where this came out of. 
So design thinking is, uh, enter the popular lexicon. Um, it's this five-step process that was really pioneered in, um, by the D School here at Stanford. And, and uh, the first step is this empathize step. And that's one where you're learning about the audience for which you're developing the design work. So it kind of makes sense. It's a user-centered approach. And the second step is defining the problem. And so what you're doing is um, figuring out what your users might want and then sort of bounding the scope of the problem in the first two steps. And that's the, the first two steps of the design thinking process. Now, the art thinking uh, methodology has a different sort of five-step process that I developed. And I do want to acknowledge some of the various thinkers that I've been reading and researching over the years to get to this point. And this is uh, Amy Whitaker. She's uh, written about her version of art thinking. And, but she's written about some really interesting ideas about having studio time um, and about uh, failure modes that I think have been uh, really influential for me. Also, John Maeda, who is a luminary and, and designer and thinker uh, who has amazing ideas. And one of my favorite is this quote, um, which he says, when people say, I don't get art, that means art is working. Right? <laughs> art, art is supposed to be confusing. You're supposed to go into a gallery or a museum and kind of wonder, like, what is you're seeing? It's supposed to ask you questions and make you wonder why you're there, uh, make you feel uneasy, not provide easy answers. And this isn't to say that the writing about art isn't problematic because the writing about art is often terrible. Like, we've all walked into museum spaces, not understood what the text is about, but to go into a, an art space and see something that is, is confusing is the norm. And so this is the five-step art thinking diagram that um, I've been working on. And so it goes through, the first step here is an inquiry step, and this starts with some sort of observation, some sort of question, maybe an experiment with the material, just some sort of point of curiosity. Right. And, um, and, and so this is, a, for me, I have an idea book, and all my, all my ideas go into that idea book. Anything that's kind of a valid inquiry will go in there. So some really bad stuff, and really good stuff, and really mediocre stuff. I'd like to say my art idea book was something like this, um, but it's actually just an Evernote document. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to share with you three, three of my bad art ideas. Um, you're welcome to, to borrow any of them. Um, so bad idea number one is to bury 3D printed fake fossils. <laughs> for, for future generations, so unicorn skulls, um, <laughs> fake animals. Uh, I'm not going to do this. Anyone else wants to do it? You, can, you don't even have to credit me. Um, bad idea number two, RGB war. It's, a, it's, it's an iPhone, Android app. Um, so you choose a team, red, green, or blue, and repeatedly press that color and get people to tap and take over territory. And so not only is it a bad idea, it's like a socially useless idea, just a waste of time. Bad idea number three is egasm. Um, so you wear an EEG headset and record people's <laughs> orgasms, and you sort of create like a sort of pleasure signature for each person and some sort of data visualization. Um, I thought this would be, well, we'll just let it go with that. <laughs> and so the next, the next stage after this inquiry stage is, is kind of boosting some of these ideas out of the idea book into the experimentation stage. And this is the, the, the most fun part of any project um, or any sort of artwork. It doesn't really exist as a project at this point. You're just kind of fucking around and just throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what happens. Uh, for Tweets in Space, this meant building these janky little receivers and an Arduino and sending the messages back and forth and kind of thinking about protocols and messaging systems and just using our imaginations and having fun with the project. Um, the next, the third phase is the shaping phase. And this is where you're sort of bringing all the different pieces and parts into a cohesive kind of whole. And this is where the project really becomes like 
like a form that you can work with. And for tweets in space, this was where we realized that um, we needed a messaging system, but also some sort of media strategy at the same time that really was two arms of the same project. And up to that point, we hadn't thought about the media that much. And we thought, oh my gosh, it's a tactical media project, of course. Like, we need publicity to make this, this project work. And the fourth stage is refinement. And to distinguish that from shaping it, it's like imagine you have this like sort of blob of an artistic project that's a cohesive whole. Refining it, you're just smoothing out the edges. Um, you're conceptually tightening it up. And if you don't go through this refinement stage, you end up with this artwork that doesn't quite work in a gallery space. For, so for Tweets in Space, what that meant is that we were um, going through and thinking about how to write the text, developing the press list, like coming up with uh, talking to physicists and figuring out the exact parameters of the messaging system, and, and really kind of making it into a cohesive whole. And the last phase is the showing the artwork phase. Uh, and this is an important phase, because if you don't show the artwork, you never come into a space where you get critical feedback. Um, and it's that critical feedback that really completes the work, making yourself feel vulnerable, actually thinking about the display elements. And this is the final part where you're thinking about how it's going to be presented. And, and what that showing phase lets you do is it also lets you come back to your point of inquiry. Right? So after you show it, you get more questions. And you can come back and develop the work further and make more work. And so this art thinking model, nowhere in there are we really thinking about, except for slightly at the very end, but we're not really thinking about these bounded approaches that you just have in design thinking. They're open-ended approaches. Um, you start with inquiry and experiment, and then you sort of shape this form. Um, but it starts with this open-ended approach, and unbounded approach. And this is how artists approach uh, their artwork, in my experience. OK, so proposition number two for the evening, artists act as generalists. And this is one thing I love about making work, is that I can work on projects where I can collaborate with not only scientists, but also engineers, um, other thinkers all over the place. So typically, I'll make between one and five projects a year. And over the course of 15 years, that amounts to a lot of different projects. Uh, this is one called Waterworks, which I did as a creative code fellowship between Autodesk, Stamen Design, and Gray Area Arts, which is a local arts organization. And in this uh, process, in this project, what I did was I decided to make a physical data visualization of the water infrastructure of San Francisco. So all the pipes, the networks of pipes underneath our feet, and the whole idea there was to somehow make visible the invisible. So bring up something from that we don't see and bring it up to a physical space. And so I was playing the role of a water detective data miner. Uh, that's a still from Chinatown, for those of you who don't recognize it. Um, and, and, uh, and, and unlike Tweets in Space, where I played the role of an amateur astronomer, I got to be a whole other person for this project. And, and this is this amazing gift I feel like artists have, is the ability to go into different kinds of modalities and, and play with entirely different dialogues. And so my point of inquiry for, tweets and, uh, for um, Waterworks was this data set from the Department of Public Works, which was a data set of 30,000 manholes and the chamber size beneath each, the volume of the chamber underneath each manhole, and the 30,000 pipes that connected each manhole and the diameter of each pipes. So you can imagine, for, some of, for a data geek like me, this was just like amazing. Like, oh my gosh, this is just such a cool data set. And what can I do with this data set? And this data set depicted the combined wastewater system of uh, San Francisco. So, for San Francisco, it's different than other California coastal cities. Uh, the uh, water from your toilets, your showers, and the stormwater all flow into the same set of pipes, and then they get piped out to gravity-fed, for the most part, to the two wastewater treatment plants, on, um, one on the bay and one on the ocean. 
And so, you know, thinking about how to experiment with making this project, um, I worked with uh, kind of, you know, some sketches of manholes. Um, this one is not one I did, but I, I kind of like it. Um, and, and trying to figure out what was beneath our feet and what it actually looked like. And started working with 3D printing over at Autodesk. I had a chance to work with their 3D printers and start writing code that would generate these models automatically instead of you know, making them by hand. And, and so it was after that kind of process of iteration, just for a little while, that I realized that 3D printing seemed to be the right form to express this because it could algorithmically generate um, this model from data sets. But also, there's something just sort of magical about 3D printing that felt like it was bringing it up from the, the bottom of the earth into the surface. And so then I began to shape the project. And this involved brainstorming with my mentors on the project in this fellowship and thinking about the various forms it could take. And I did a lot of work. And the shaping process is, often involves most of the work in, in, this, uh, in this art thinking model. And I wrote code in open frameworks, an open source C++ toolkit to model out the, um, the manholes in 3D space, in virtual space. So this is the northern part of the city, of course. Natives in San Francisco will recognize this as Golden Gate Park, any residents here. This is, I guess, um, Buena Vista, Twin Peaks. And you can see the ridge lines of the city. And so this is just the manhole data um, with some elevations that I put in there. And then the feedback I got from the mentors was to geolocate this on some sort of map, that without a map, it didn't really kind of work. And so I settled upon this, uh, this laser-etched map, making this at Autodesk with help from Stamen Design for the mapping. And this is just a section of the downtown area. You can see the piers near the bay and that little uh, piece at the top, which is the Bay Bridge. And then I worked on the refinement step for this process, which involved really honing the 3D geometry and coming up with the exact area that I wanted to print out. And this is the export model that I made. And you can see this section of uh, San Francisco. So printing out the entire 3D uh, sewer network would be too big for even these large printers I was using. And so this is the final uh, 3D model that I exported from the code I wrote. And then finally, preparing it for show, which meant all the detailed fabrication work, you know, drilling out the holes, mounting it. That's me in the shop. And that's the final piece there. And so this, these hills here are accentuated by about three times. So that's like, that makes San Francisco look like it's got super, super steep hills everywhere. But I found that if it's not accentuated that much, it doesn't really have that sort of like, doesn't really kind of hold the viewer in the same way. And you can't really see the individual nodes. Here's an upper, upper view of the uh, more bird's eye-like view of the model. And here's a close-up. And with the close-up, you can start to see some really interesting features. This is a telegraph hill over here. So you see this like, sort of like old node network of small manhole, small pipes. This is Kearney Street right there, this thoroughfare. And you can also see the pipes along the Embarcadero, some really thick stuff going on in here, Rincon Center, Moscone Center maybe, and this kind of grid-like surface over here. Um, and so it was interesting to, to present this work. Um, and oh, just uh, the gray, the light gray are the pipes, and the dark gray are the manholes. And so everything gets kind of overlapped and mushed on top of each other. And so one of the precepts I'm kind of working with is that data somehow has physical consequences. So uh, most data is, is presented oftentimes on the screen. And the screen is this odd sort of place to look at data, because the screen has its intimacy, but a lack of intimacy, because 
the screen is this function of the computer that we look at all the time for just about everything, everything personal, everything business. And so there's a certain distance that we have from the screen. But bring it into physical space, we can move around it and look around it. We can touch it. Uh, we can see it from different vantage points. And so it seems appropriate for me to create data that is modeled physically. And that's really the crux of my practice nowadays. OK, proposition number three. It's OK to appropriate the work of artists. Okay, I know this one's going to get me in trouble, um, and I'll qualify it. But, um, but I, I think that if you kind of come back to this model, like artists aren't really meant to participate in the market in the first place. I mean, maybe you sell some works. Um, sure, that's, that's part of the market. Most artists have a lot of trouble making a living doing that. Um, but the market's not really there to support artists in the first place. And I want to give you one example, um, James Terrell. So for those of you that aren't familiar with James Terrell's work, he is a, like a, an amazing artist that works with light and space. If you've ever seen any of his installations, you go there and you feel the sense of like sublime, sort of spiritual, at peace with the world, and, and just works with your perception in such ways that it's just somehow magical. And he's been doing this work for years and years, and he's sort of pioneered that area. Uh, this is the um, video by uh, Drake called Hotline Bling, which came out last year. And if you look at this video, you'll see that it really looks a lot like James Terrell's work, right? Like, Kind of changing light sculpture, sort of minimal. Uh, one of the folks at Hyperallergic did a shot-by-shot -shot analysis um, of, of some of Drake's work and, and Terrell's work. And so on the top, you see Drake's, Drake's you know, installation on his video, uh, work on the video, and then Terrell's installations below. And Drake was asked about this, and, and he actually said, you know, <laughs> and he actually said, he actually said, you're a big influence, you know? You know, I fuck with Terrell. He's a big influence on me. And then, and then they asked Terrell about it, and Terrell said, you know, well, he honored my work. You know, I actually enjoyed it. I got a lot more attention since he got involved. And so, so I'll kind of come back to this proposition. And that's why I call it a proposition and not a statement. It's okay to appropriate the work of artists under a few conditions. First of all, you need to recontextualize the work, which I believe is what Drake did. He presented a music video. The music kind of matched the form that he was working with. He reshot it. So recontextualizing work doesn't mean going on to someone's website and taking the JPEG off there and printing out a quilt and selling it on Alibaba. That's not really recontextualizing it. That's just stealing it. Um, also, artists need to have some sort of funding model, right? So like taking work and appropriating it from some artist that's not even had, doesn't have any sort of living to make their work and is doing that on the side, that's not really fair to the artist. But if they had funding behind them, then they could participate in this kind of economy where they could let their ideas go more freely. And finally, give them some sort of nod of credit. And that is important not only to acknowledge the artist, but also to dispel this creator myth, that this idea that we somehow get amazing ideas from our own head and they're not born from anywhere else, to just acknowledge this and create a lineage of thought and, and culture. Um, and I, I think that kind of idea that, that I'm kind of mining here or thinking about is that artists have, need to have this expanse of time. And if they're working with the exigencies of the market and thinking about how to make a living all the time, they don't have time to really think about those long-term kind of thoughts and to work in this artistic direction. They're much more concerned with the immediate, how to sell my work, how to find funding, and don't have that expansive space to be creative. Okay, so proposition number four, artists have more in common with scientists than designers. <laughs> this is the scientific method, which is something that we probably learned in high school. And, uh, and, and many of the scientists know that that there's a lot of similarities between artists and scientists in their methodology. Um, you start from points of curiosity. You go through this iterative kind of experimentation process. 
you're not really thinking about user-centric design and thinking about these bounded sort of problems. And yeah, and yeah the, the results are very different. Artists are making like the specific object or performance that might express a larger idea. And scientists are usually making some sort of general theory or abstraction. But they're usually kind of working the same kind of freeform sort of thought process. And this kind of led me into working with scientists, this kind of similarity with other scientists and, and the sort of we're of the same kind of people. And so currently I'm an artist in residence with the SETI organization, SETI Institute. And uh, there are amazing scientists there. I go down there and I talk to people who are thinking about really weird stuff all the time and asking the big questions of like, why are we here? You know, where do we come from? And I'm also doing the same thing. I'm thinking about really weird shit all the time and asking myself the same questions, but, but we're going about it in completely different ways. Um, so for this project, Strewn Fields, um, I worked with Dr. Peter Jeniskins, who is an amazing scientist. He is a, one of the world's experts on meteorites and meteors. And um, so he and he sort of, when I got in there, explained what a strewn field is. And so a strewn field is what happens when an asteroid comes into Earth's atmosphere. So for, just to clarify, an asteroid is floating in space. A meteor is when it enters the atmosphere, it's that, you know, that ball of fire. And a meteorite is the shards on the ground. Um, and so, so a strewn field, when an asteroid comes into Earth's atmosphere, it comes so at maybe 30,000 kilometers an hour. It's super fast. It gets heated up really quickly. It slows down because it hits the atmosphere, and it'll burst into various shards, sending meteorites, meteors all over the place, and hitting in the ground and spreading this field of meteorites everywhere. And it might be over as long as 30 kilometers, so it can be a huge distance. And that's what a strewn field is, is that meteorite kind of spread. And, and he's worked with um, folks such as uh, people in the Sudan at this recent, relatively recent uh, meteorite fall in 2008. He worked with students there at the University of Khartoum to map the meteorites out. And remember, this is over like maybe 30 kilometers, right, in the sand. And, and so he had 100 volunteers, and, and they're all, can you imagine them walking through the sand for weeks, <laughs> picking up like this and saying, is this a meteorite? And he's like, no. No, no, no. But eventually, he got the, the students got pretty well trained at what wasn't a meteorite, and they ended up producing this amazing data set of, uh, of meteorite strewn fields. And with current technology, they could geolocate each one. So you have a latitude, a longitude, so you have an XY, and then you have a mass, um, a size for the meteorite. So I could work with those three points of data. And my inquiry point was how to make a physical artwork from a strewn field. So given the strewn field data set, what can I do with it? Um, and I decided to use the water jet machine at Autodesk, where I work now. And, and the water jet machine is just this amazing tool. It's kind of like a, like a laser cutter with water. It exudes a 55,000 PSI stream of water. It can cut through like anything. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, it can cut through up to six inches thick of steel. Um, and so what I thought about was, was using that kind of violence of the water jet machine that, that mirrored this kinetic energy of the, the asteroid, just this like huge pounding and, and etching, but not piercing, into stone. And stone makes sense because stone is, of course, what their surface is made of. So it makes sense to etch into stone to reflect this strewn field. And so I went through this pretty heavy experimentation phase of, uh, and I have a bunch of samples back in the back if you didn't have a chance to see them, check them out later. You're, you're welcome to touch them. Um, I went through about 40 different uh, types of stone to determine what their properties were when I etched them with the water jet. And the people who at OMAX that have the water jet were just like, what are, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why would you do that? <laughs> uh, 
Um, and so this is a, a basalt. This last one here was a slate, so it shatters a whole bunch. The basalt kind of blows out. A quartzite produces a really nice sort of pattern. I was really happy with that one. Uh, but no one had really etched stone before with a water jet, at least it documented like I had. So, so I had to go through this heavy-duty materials experiment. And after the experimentation phase, I started you know, shaping it. I started working with the code to, in open frameworks to map the meteorite locations and their sizes into etch patterns for the water jet. And so you can see here the way the meteorite the way the meteorite spread here, this is the Sudan impact. The meteors came in and dropped down from this side, dropped down these little bits, the smaller pieces, and then, you know, kerplunk, larger, 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 and then this is the mass of the leftover, the leftover stones. And so this one really looks like something, you know, like a, like a meteor coming down, and it looks like a, this fireball. And it came down like this because it came down at a really acute angle um, and not such a direct impact. And then I'd worked through the refinement stage, made a metal mass to help me cut the, the materials, and finally developed these three, uh, three prints. So I have four different strewn fields from four different data sets from four different impact sites that Peter provided to me. And these are really the only four data sets that seem, seem to be existing. Um, and that's only because we have only recently had the technology to map these out. Uh, so this one is at Sutter's Mill in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And this one had more of a like more of a direct impact. You don't see that kind of spread like you did in the other ones. We're coming down more like boom, like that. And this uh, stone is all sourced, not locally, but the stone is as close as I could get to match that site. So you find quartzite like this in the, the Nevada, Sierra Nevada foothills all the time. Uh, this is the aforementioned um, Sudan impact. And so this is a French limestone. And, and with this, you get these kind of really kind of crazy, unpredictable, pockety kind of patterns. Uh, these sort of modeled patterns. That happens because the water is water and it's unpredictable. And then this is uh, the meteorite impact at Shelobinsk in Russia. So you might have seen the, from the dashboard cameras several years ago of all the fireballs going across. And this one came up from this direction, and then the big fall is over here. And so with Stringfields, I thought about this time model. And, and the, so the physical lifespan of the artwork is sort of like the present moment. And, and because I've etched into stone, um, you know, the physical lifespan of the artwork is going to be like maybe here. My lifespan is going to be right around here. Um, so it's going to be much longer than me that that artwork lives, probably in my storage space and off to my, my, to my various relatives. <laughs> and I'm going to present one last project and then uh, one last uh, proposition. And then... Um, and then we'll go on to a question and answer period after that. So the last one I want to talk about is uh, Hello World, which is a collaboration between Planet Labs and Autodesk. And it's the first art exhibition in space. Right. Uh, so Planet Labs, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is a local uh, company out here that is uh, it's a satellite company that is launching low-orbit satellites around the world at about maybe about 36 of them at any one time. And they orbit very quickly and they're imaging satellites. So these are called dove satellites. They're used for applications such as um, for farming, for example, if you want to see your fields every day and how they might change, as opposed to Google Maps, which will give you a Google satellite, which will give you um, a view, a static view. This will give you a more dynamic view. And with these satellites, they're pretty small, as you can see. This is not my artwork, but this is someone else's. And they offer to us to laser etch the size of the satellites and put artwork on there. Right, so I thought that was kind of a great opportunity. Um, and as a call for entries to our community. And so what happens is once they're kind of put out into space, they open up. 
and the artwork becomes visible, and then they put the solar panels out, and so the artwork becomes visible in space if you were you know, maybe 10 feet away from the satellite. <laughs> so, so we have to kind of take it on faith that's up there. <laughs> and so you know, my, my point of inquiry is, what can I put in space, given the canvas of the satellite? So I thought really hard about this and making physical data visualizations. I came up with this idea, and this is what Otto's been drawing for us for the evening. Uh, it's a slightly smaller version or a, a slightly uh, more coarse version of the same thing. And what this is is two data visualizations of the Earth. So the first one is a map of all the population of all the cities of the world. And so you can see um, some of the larger cities, Tokyo over here, very large. So the larger the square, the larger the population. Uh, lots, of, lots of people in India. Uh, New York, pretty big. Uh, Sao Paulo, Rio, also very big. There's London over there. Uh, yeah, Portuguese suites right over here. Uh, and there's a lot of empty spaces, you know, in our map. Like, not so much here. Australia is here, mostly empty. Some, some cities over here. And on the bottom is the carbon footprint of all those cities. And so if you kind of pull that out, um, you see, predictably, the United States is, like, crazy. China, kind of crazy. Tokyo, a lot smaller than the population of Tokyo. Uh, India is, you know, is, is actually about the same, um, and, and Africa predictably is a lot less of impact. Uh, there's also some interesting features, like if you check out these points, like New York, um, you know, Shanghai, some of the cities in China, Tokyo, and then Tehran and Riyadh, you'll see that that there's a huge carbon footprint in in the Middle East. And so this is a, a replica of the final etched panel. This is a, was pre presented at an exhibition at the Chabot Space and Science Center. This is a lot larger than the smaller one. Um, and, and, and what I like about this is that the satellites are set to burn up in Earth's atmosphere after about three years. And so it's been up there for about two years, so my artwork in space, which I cannot see, will, um, will be up there for another year and then plunge to its fiery death. And, and <laughs> And I love this. I thought about this really hard, that this, this data visualization is so simple. It's one that the satellite view might see, but also it's this kind of poetic warning that, about climate change to, to pay attention to. Cool. And the last proposition I'm going to make for the evening is um, to let artists be artists. Right? So what does that mean? Um, artists are the ones who, I believe, have access to this amazing methodology of art thinking. They're the ones who, who work with this methodology all the time. And and while I like a lot of the books and the, the, the book Art Thinking that Amy, Amy Whitaker talks about her version of art thinking in a certain way, and, and her ideas are amazing, but the application of her ideas are to bring art thinking into corporation spaces and how to train people like engineers and people who are not artists how to think about art from an art thinking point of view. But, but these are engineers who are trained to do engineering. And so I think a lot of times like, they have a lot of trouble doing this. They don't really do it very well because they're, they're doing engineering work all day. And then they're asked to think like artists for, you know, when they're in their spare time. It doesn't really make sense. So I would argue that it's, you really want to bring artists into these spaces and give them that kind of economic freedom, that kind of support in corporation spaces, in funding spaces, and let them make these crazy wackadoodle projects. Um, because the artists are the ones who have that kind of unbounded sort of ways of thinking. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, that's great. So, so let's just uh, quick, because I think the, the hash marks are, do you, did you uh, oh, yeah. mention that? Yeah, do you want to just say? Oh, yeah. so, so those the are hash, The hash marks on the bottom were sort of a, an indicator. So this hash mark aligns with Tokyo, 
This one here with, on the bottom, bottom in the middle aligns with London, and the one on the left aligns with New York City. So just uh, some points for, yeah. You know, for, for orientation, orientation on the uh, so so do you, do you think that w with a piece like this or some of the others is the is the readability sort of a kind of high level first encounter uh, being able to understand it how important is that or is sort of the disorientation of what the hell am I looking at is is do you think of that as being more important fair question and it, it I think it's that the conversation between legibility and aesthetics is is one that depends on the piece. So something like Waterworks, I felt like was important to have more on the legible side. Um, but something that, um, you know, something like the, this one, and if I kind of go back just a couple of slides, you know, if you look at this piece, which of course only exists in space, but does exist on the website, this is legible as a, as a map of the world. And you may not be able to understand exactly what that data is, but when you look at it closely, you can start to get there. But some of the sometimes the work doesn't have to be so legible. It can just be an aesthetic experience that that doesn't really work that way. So it's really context dependent. Um, so we've got, a, I'm sure, a lot of questions out here. Um, Rio is over here, so catch her eye. She's going to get the microphone to you. Uh, I'm going to ask a couple more quick questions, and then, but, but uh, definitely look for Rio and do that. And, and I want to take a moment to thank uh, everyone, all the Long Now members who are listening on uh, our, or listening and watching on the live stream. Um, we've got members from all over. Uh, they're doing that. So um, definitely send us your questions as well in the chat uh, in there, and, and they'll get relayed to me uh, on the stage. Um, so so your, you mentioned you know, new media artist is, um, so you've been doing like 15 years of new media artists. So you've watched a lot of that new media turn into old media. <laughs> so, so, so there's an interesting, and, and I think all of us who uh, even just as individuals, as consumers, um, we're all watching technology progress, and we're watching some things come and go. I mean, you, you've done work in Second Life uh, back in the day. You've, you've been involved in, I'm, I'm sure, uh, 3D printing from early on and seeing it change and mature and so forth. What's your takeaway as somebody who uses technology and is you know, now you're onboarding new technologies around the horizon. I'm sure you're playing around with different things. What lessons do you take from both how things have um, been promising and fallen and, and how new things are emerging on the horizon? What, what can you tell us? I think there's sort of two, there's many aspects to that question I could answer, but there's two sort of things I think about. From an artistic point of view, whenever a new technology is, is really introduced and made available to artists, um, there's this gap between when that technology is made available and when it sort of becomes for lack of a better term, like, like sort of co-opted into the mainstream. Before it's really get made, established a set of codes around it. And it's during that period where artists are often playing with that technology and, and working with ways to define it and to play with it. So 3D printing is a good example of, of um, you know, working at Autodesk at their, at their facilities there. Uh, we had access to these 3D printers not a long time ago during the 3D printing sort of revolution but rather at a time where it's being talked about, like 2013, 2014, 2015, and to, to modern day. And suddenly, with artists at having access to these tools, they're making things that people would not have thought about had they not been there. So by the time 2017, 2018 rolls around, they have a reference point to what 3D printing can do. So instead of people making Yoda heads, you know, and, and engineers doing that and putting them on like Boing Boing, you have artists making like much more innovative sort of, you know, projects around it. 
Uh, we've got a question there. There we go. Yeah, I have a question, and it's a question, a comment, an observation. I love the um, point you made that um, art is more similar to science than it is to design. The way I've um, held that in my head has been, in a way, art and science are constantly asking questions, whereas design is really about answering and finding solutions. But I'd like to ask you a little bit about the distinction between art and science, in the sense that um, uh, as a uh, system of thinking or a form of knowledge production, both art and science are peer-reviewed and cumulative and so forth. But there is a, the interesting difference is that art really has an ability to ask questions unencumbered by uh, facts or by um, uh, unencumbered by um, political systems. I mean, it really is one of those areas where um, human beings are really allowed to challenge assumptions and to reveal the invisible and to, and to demand answers to questions or pose questions that are really challenging. And I would argue that as a species, given the potency of culture and collective knowledge, our ability to actually survive on the planet is all about our ability to ask these questions and to push the edges. And uh, the presence of, of art in every culture is not a fact that human beings like art, but it's a fact that uh, those cultures that have been able to exert uh, political power in such a level that questions about it are not allowed are no longer around because adaptability requires the ability to ask questions beyond our framework. So in a way, art provides adaptability to the species and that's why we have it. And so I'd like to you know, just sort of compliment you for your work but also ask you to riff on that. I think you've, yeah, you've said it, you've already said what, what I could possibly, most of the things I could possibly say that, that we know that art there's a few things, like art has existed in every human culture, and the ones that, and also, one thing to think about is politically repressive systems always clamp down on art, right? So, I mean, we know this from like our own system about the NEA funding and things like that. We know that about just about every system that has a sense of like political repression will start taking away the artists. Now, why do they do that, right? So, that's really one of the areas to think about in answer to what you're saying about is it, it sort of takes that adaptability out of the question, out of the, out of the framework. And that's one of the many reasons, but I think, yeah, just that's one thought I would sort of add to your, your what the generous thoughts you provided. Right, so um, what, uh, what has been useful about having uh, the, your chart of art thinking? So you mentioned that Amy Whitaker, you know, she's trying to bring it into into business, what's been useful for you about having this to show to people? Yeah, so this is the first time I've presented this diagram publicly. Um, but it's been useful for me as a process because, you know, as every artist, I've, I've had many failures. And I'm, I'm getting much better at not making failures anymore. And so one of the things with the art thinking model is that, and I didn't really, um, I kind of skipped over this in my talk, was that art thinking, let's get over to it for a second. So. One thing about this model is that art thinking, and what I've discovered is that there's a failure mode, that, and this is what something that Amy Whitaker talks about, that any point you can fail in this process. And, and it's okay to fail. Like if you come to the refinement process, the stage, and you fail and you can't make, and you can't really refine the work, and you kind of 
mind it, mind it, mind it, you just have to let it go. You just have to start over and abandon it. And I've, I've made the, process, the problem of getting too attached to the work and maybe working under a deadline and then just kind of pumping the work out anyways and pushing through. And then I end up with this like kind of tepid piece that doesn't quite work. It's on my website and I look at it and I'm like, ah, oh, geez, you know, why did I make that one? Um, and, and, and so in, in many cases, it would be better just to kind of think about each of those as, as failure nodes. And, and one of the things that artists do is they work towards an arc of failure. And designers work towards an art, towards success. So they're trying to make a successful product. And oftentimes, I'm taking stuff in that experimentation mode and hoping it will fail. Like, like will this hopefully fail? And if it fails, then I can just drop it and do something else. So, so let me ask you another question, another difference between scientists and artists. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, scientists, you know, they're meticulously documenting as they're doing their experiments and, and as a community and as a, as a pursuit, um, you're not going to tip, you know, so working with scientists, you have the benefit of seeing this variety of, uh, of, of um, uh, heterogeneity of, of, of different approaches to something or different um, experiments and field experiments, not so much in art. So one is that is that a good thing? Because you, you're not encumbered by some of it. And also, as a computer scientist, you know, as as, as a coder, you, I'm sure you're you're documenting. You're, you're doing you're doing some things in some ways to document that I, stuff. I think you're I think you're respectively wrong on those counts. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, you haven't looked at my code. Just go to the, my Git uh, repo, and you'll see how bad the coding is. Uh, and I all from the Exploratorium can can attest to that one. My ex coworkers. Um, and and so. But, but I think scientists document the results. They document their findings. But when I go down and study, I'm, I'm amazed at what they actually don't document. They don't document all these amazing materials that could be archived and like, made public, like the spaces. They don't, they don't photograph the spaces they work with. They don't really think about this stuff. They think about like, the data sets, the results. And so they're documenting the small sliver. And artists, um, their documentation is really their work in some ways. And so. Um, you know, when you're making artwork, gallerists that I've worked with and other artists are very careful about, about like, you know, working with archival ink, you know, and, and using the white gloves and packing everything just so. And, and they're always, you know, that's, those are always a question. Is this archival ink? Is this, how is this made? How is that made? And so that's really the documentation we work in. And I think in a lot of ways, artists actually are better at archiving their process and their work than scientists are. Scientists and, and artists are also, you know, competing for, like, these sort of, sequestered spaces a lot of times. And one other thing to think about is, um, in my conversations with Peter, is that he would talk about how the journals that in which he published would have a very, very small audience, like you know, 10 scientists or 20 scientists. And artists, even showing in galleries, I might have a relatively small audience, but it's 10 times what you might get for a world-class scientist. And so our documentation in those spaces are much different than what you might get in like, uh, a space like Drake is working in, which reaches millions of people. How, how well does Drake document is really the question <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to ask. Uh, we've got a question back here with the mic. Um, is this on? All right. So I really loved how you framed your work and how you described the scientific process versus the artistic process. Um, and then you had your uh, propositions where um, you, you said, let artists be artists. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, I feel like you're describing two threads, which is like art as a a verb and as a process or art as a as a noun as an identity and for you and your work and how you think about uh that in relation to time what do you privilege um the artistic identity or 
the art artistic process and how would you sort of delineate the two or not? Wow, good question. Um, yeah, I, there's definitely a slippage of terms there and I don't think I could privilege one term or the other. I mean, when I introduce myself, I introduce myself as an artist and you know, that's what my identity is. So if I'm on a plane with someone, that's my, my identity. They ask me what I'm doing and that's, that's my professional identity through the world. Um, but, I mean, they operate in different spheres, I guess. And so it's just one is, one is the noun identity sphere and the other is a process-based sphere. But I think if I had to really make a determinant, if I had to drop one, I'd drop the identity and just go with the process. To me, that process-based approach is something that's far more natural. I mean, I learned uh, when I was in college, when I actually was on a science track to do um, organic chemistry and things like that, and I started cheating and faking my lab reports and, and writing these really detailed fake lab reports about all the, the crazy things that, that would happen in the experiments, I realized really quickly that the artistic process or like the telling story process was much more interesting to me than the scientific process. And so this was inherent in like my being at a fairly young age to tell stories, to you know, stretch things out and not really pay as much attention to, but also have respect for the scientific process. So, uh, and we'll, we'll take one more question from the audience. Um, let's talk for another second about um, another project at SETI. Uh, Frank is here, and um, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about Frank in a second, but what, what are you guys collaborating on? What's your other um, SETI project? And you're, okay. you're currently at SETI, right? Does that run through the end of the year, or what's yeah, your that, term? Yeah, that's gonna that? run for a while longer. Um, you know, like a lot of things, we're not sure about the exact bounds of the project. Art doesn't adhere to <laughs> calendars, yeah. Um, and so the current project I'm working on with Frank is we're making a stellar map. And so the stellar map is a map of the exoplanets in our, in our um, nearby system, our nearby galaxies. And my thinking, my current thinking about this collaboration, I haven't run this by Frank yet, so he'll, he'll learn about it right now, which is that I'm, I'm thinking about making a map of just the ones that are habitable, the ones that have more water on them than other ones. So not kind of ignoring the gas giants and making just like these nodes of possible exploration. And so thinking about making this as an installation that's physical as opposed to a virtual installation and having people going through space and having it activated um, some sort of sound component. And that's currently where that's at. That's in development um, another few months. Um, and, and Frank, why don't you come up for, for a second real quick. So Frank is actually going to speak for us uh, in 2018. Uh, he's a, a, an astronomer at SETI. I'm going to hand you the mic. And um, do you want to just tell us, I don't know, first of all, you can tell us that he's totally wrong or, or whatever. Is there anything on that? <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and maybe you can say a word actually about what, from a scientist's perspective, what it's like collaborating with an artist. And then we can talk about uh, what's going to happen after the talk briefly, too. Okay. Um, hi. Sorry. Well, um, we started working together like what, eight months ago, a yeah, year yeah, ago? Yeah. yeah. So, coincidentally, it's located nearby my gym, so I'm often there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the idea was that we had long conversations. In fact, we, we met various times, and the project is changing, but ideally, what I wanted to express as a scientist is that we scientists are trying to explore the world. Uh, we are astronomers finding new exoplanets, planets around uh, stars which are habitable or could be habitable. Uh, and I noticed that people have a hard time to understand the distance, to understand where are those planets. So our collaboration is basically, he's going to be the guy who's going to make this map and make us uh, realize the distance between those exoplanets, but also make us realize that in fact some of them are very, very close. 
And one day in the future, my idea is we will go there. So this will, could be the first map of that, that will show the people that yes, there is habitable there, worlds over there, and maybe there is life. And that's why we work at the City Institute. So that's our project. But in terms of uh, working at the City Institute and having artists, I mean, this has been kind of a game changer for a lot of us. Uh, science is very dry. It's a very dry environment. Sometimes, you know, you talk to your colleagues about uh, papers that have been uh, refused or grants that you need to get. Uh, sometimes you talk about some great uh, discoveries you've made, but ultimately when you talk between scientists, it's not very motivating. And having uh, people like you coming to this institute, this, uh, these artists who come with some great ideas, who come with these questions that we don't realize people have, has been extremely uh, entertaining, but also extremely useful for us to, to realize that, yeah, we do some cool stuff. And <laughs> something that Peter told me is that he likes the fact that you ask him um, about these fragments, coordinates, and for him it's like, yeah, it's a bunch of data. But for you it was something more. It was something that tangible that you could use for, you, for your art. And uh, he was very excited, and you know what Peter is, right? He doesn't care, he doesn't care, and then suddenly when he cares about what you're doing, he sends you probably like 20 more data that he will ask you to, uh, to do. But uh, uh, we, uh, I'm sure this collaboration is going to be he was, he was amazing because Peter, uh, you know, I asked him to show up to the, the show, the opening last year when he presented this, and he's like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to show up. Um, I'm like, oh, man, whatever. You know, I've been working with the scientists. It's kind of annoying. And then, um, and, then, and then he shows up like an hour before the show, and the gallery's not even open yet. And he has this, I get there, and he has this box full of meteorites, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, and I'm like, what? You brought your meteorites with you? And so um, Rhiannon and I set up, the gallerist and I set up um, a, a table for him in the back, um, and so he was just showing his meteorites to like the people who came to the show, and it was like I was like, stop doing that! You're taking away from the work. No, 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 no just kidding. It was it was amazing though. It was just amazing to me to have this steady scientist inside this completely unfamiliar art space in the Mission District in San Francisco. And Peter just had the biggest smile on his face. He was just completely in his element, and and all the people there just loved him, loved talking to him, and you know loved touching them with gloves, and and really enjoying that experience. So thank you. Um, so, so Frank, do you want to? Um, so you've brought a prototype uh, telescope here, and we're gonna. Well, no, we'll, we'll just. I'm just gonna let it. Then we'll 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 get back uh, into it. But um, just um, so, just look for Frank afterwards. It won't be right immediately afterwards. We're gonna we're hanging out here, but then uh, Frank's gonna scout out a place and come back and let us know when he's ready. Right, and we'll uh, we'll take. A, you think it's it's not gonna happen? Okay. Well then, will you you you'll hang out and people can uh, can can drink and commiserate with you, and you'll tell them more about how it works. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So so look for this man afterwards. So thank you, Frank. So Scott, that's a great segue. Do you want to say something about the SETI Artist in Residence program in general? Um, just a, a little bit of background about that and how yeah. sensitive it is. Um, so a little bit of background is Charles Lindsay um, started the program several years ago. And, and the backstory is that he was in, a, and he can tell it much better than I am, so I'm going to try to summarize what I remember from and, his and, and we should actually, in case, I don't think we've actually said anything other than SETI, so do you want to, uh, the search for? The search for extraterrestrial <laughs> intelligence. Hopefully everyone here knows what they do. Uh, so they're looking and searching for extraterrestrial life. And they're doing it in a few different ways, in our solar system, um, outside of our solar system through listening. 
Um, and then through observation, such as Kepler and, and through what Frank's doing, um, which is adaptive optics using telescopes. So, so kind of really three ways, three primary ways of looking for life. Um, so collecting possible biological samples and then um, listening and, and, and looking. And, and so there's sort of like this friendly race on is the way I've seen it between the three different vectors. And so the, the SETI Artists in Residence program came about because Charles Lindsay was giving a talk and Jill Tarter from, who's sort of, a, she was based on Jodie Foster's character from Contact was based on her, were at the same event. And they had a conversation and, and hatched this idea of having a residency program. And so like Frank said, bringing artists into the space so that they can give scientists an insight to why their work is so amazing. And for artists, it's amazing to have access to these scientists who are normally, you know, you never have access to it. These are just amazing thinkers. And so I'm actually on the second round of artists in residence. There's about three or four or four or five of us on this round, and then presumably there will be another round in 2018 or so. And uh, Rachel Sussman is a former speaker Sussman, here, yeah. uh, also been an artist there. I think we've got a question uh, in the back there. Great. Let us know. And, and hold the, make sure to hold the mic pretty close to you. Thank you for the talk. Thank you, Scott. Um, great talk. You have me thinking about all kinds of things. Um, but I'll try to center on one question, which is about the model. And I'm thinking, as someone who also works in the arts and works to support artists, how we as society can support new media artists in their practice differently than how we've supported artists in the past. Or, and you could think about this from a teaching perspective or support perspective. So like, what stages in this process need more time? Like, How is it different to be working in new media? I have ideas about what that might look like, but I'm curious to hear from you um, Yeah, what the process looks like in terms of time and where we need to, to spend time to So are you to thinking more this? like artists versus new media artists or more like where we should? Yeah, I'm thinking of like, so like a painter might um, need less time to experiment presumably, because their medium is defined, they're already working in a, a defined space um, on the canvas, and so they can spend more time shaping and refining, for example, yeah, yeah. roughly. Yeah. Um, but and a new media artist is working more broadly across materials. Yeah, and in all fairness, I've developed this model, you know, thinking about new media artists, and I, hopefully it can apply to, to more of the traditional arts as well. Um, but I, I think that, it's, that with new media and technology, you always have this problem of, of working with the technology because the technology itself can be really hard to harness. So you don't want to get, it's really not a good situation to get into working something really tech heavy at the early stages. So you want to get more tech heavy in the later stages. So like I said, with the Tweets in Space project, you know, we didn't really write any code until, I mean, besides this little like silly Arduino test until the showing phase. Like we didn't really get there until the very end, until we got the funding, until we really were ready to show it. And so deferring that, that kind of technological investment uh, for the new media artist seems to be the way to go. And so for me, trying to spend a lot of time in that experimentation cycle is super important and trying not to rush it into like a shaping or refinement form and, and really trying to make sure that you you spend time experimenting and then you do something else. You do another project, you go on vacation, you give it some rest. And so a lot of times the failures I've had in artwork tend to be from trying to make something on too tight a deadline, uh, being really excited about something and rushing through it and not really thinking about how well it's working. So giving um, a lot of space to a project, like months and months of space as opposed to a month of space. Um, but I think that's 
kind of like the technology is the technology bit is as you know from we we work together is something that I always think about like oh geez do I really want to make like a motor with this little gear system that does this and this and this that's going to take me a really long time and trying to get out of that prototyping stage. All right. Well, uh, this is great. Um, as always at the interval, uh, now that the talk's over, we invite you to hang out. Scott's going to be here uh, to keep the conversation going with him. Uh, Frank's here, and he's got the, the prototype in his laptop <laughs> to show you uh, what, what it can do. And um, this, is, uh, this is when those, those final moments, when, when a few more things can come together as we keep talking. Um, let's have a big round of applause for Scott. That's really fantastic. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.